You are listening to Action Line on KINY. I am your host, as always, Jordan Lewis. And joining me in the studio today is Guy Archibald. The and let me re-pull up. I think I nope, I don't have it on here, but I remember it correctly. You are the executive director for C. How would you pronounce your group as an acronym? Now that uh, I think about it, I usually don't pronounce it. I just say S E I T C. But it's the Southeast Alaska Indigenous Transboundary Commission. Okay. Now, in a moment of peak radio descri- uh, transparency, I realized I had you on the wrong mic for a sec. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yes, you are, you are Guy Archibald, Executive Director for the Southeast Alaska Indigenous Transboundary Commission. Okay. Yes. There we go. Now, I have asked you to come on today because, as I'm sure you are aware, and as well as the listener base, yesterday I had Michael Goring on, who was the president for the Mining Association of British Columbia, and we were talking about transboundary mining. And now, in the sake of balance and the importance of that, I have asked you to come on to give the Southeast perspective, because he made certain comments on there that I thought were a bit interesting, to, to put it that way. And so, where would you like to start? Well, I would like to start with his uh, statement that there is misinformation or disinformation coming from the Alaska side. Um, I look at it as that there is only uh, partial information coming from the BC side, and it's left up to us Alaskans to kind of fill in those gaps. For instance, he tried to compare that there was only two active mines in the uh, transboundary region of British Columbia, where Alaska has six active mines. But he failed to point out that the KSM mine alone, if it was built, would be 82 times the size of the Greens Creek mine on Admiralty Island. And the Glor Creek mine in the Stikine watershed is every bit as big as the KSM mine. So comparing the two is just kind of disingenuous. Gotcha. And then I had showed you this graphic earlier. It was actually uh, the Toyton Resources Corporation. I think I pronounced that correctly, which also owns uh, some land over with, uh, which is over in the Askay Creek area, had a sort of an analysis that included some of the KSM area. And within the KSM area, you have, you know, five potential dig sites in there for, you know, gold and copper. And so then that raises the question of, is that one is that one mine because that's all within the one property or is that five because you have five potential places you could dig at? Uh, Yes, it could be a whole mining district. And in addition to that, there's many other exploration companies actively drilling all around there. Now, not every exploration turns into a full-blown mine, but each and every full-blown mine starts with exploration. So there could be many, many mines, and that's just within the Eunuch River watershed. Exactly, which if you need a good reference for that, the Eunuch River flows down in toward Ketchikan. So if you need a visual mental reference for where that is. Yes, in the Blem Canal, and it's a very small watershed. And the water quality data that I've seen shows that it's very low in alkalinity or very low hardness. That means it has very little ability to neutralize any kind of acid mine drainage that should land into it. Um, So it's a very sensitive river, and it's one of the largest uh, salmon producers in southeast. Yeah, and again, you think about important economy for Southeast is our commercial fisheries. If you have risk to our salmon for any reason, that's going to put constraint on that. And then 
you, if so, then if you have the problems coming, potential problems, I should say, coming from those mines upriver, that's going to be a problem for other parts of Southeast beyond even just maintaining the environment. Well, in particular, it's a problem to our member tribes because many of our communities drive 80% of their caloric intake from the foods they collect from the sea and uh, the forest. And it's not only uh, food security, but it's also the ability to practice their culture. And all of that could be wiped out um, if these mines end up polluting the river. Exactly. And then maybe for the listener base, just explain, because you and I were talking about before the break, but you are a scientist. So maybe explain the, the field that you are in for scientific study, I should say. Uh, I'm an analytical environmental chemist and microbiologist with about 20 years of experience in the laboratory, many of which was analyzing uh, the discharge effluent from mining companies and whether or not it complies with regulations and law. So I think that's also good to have. And then as another sort of disclosure thing, uh, as a UAS student, I went with uh, a bachelor's in biology. And so I Originally, it was actually a Bachelor's of Science in Marine Bio, became a BA in Bio because I started doing my journalism work. But that's why I can understand a lot of those things that you mentioned, or even other guests mentioned when it comes to scientific topics or issues, because those are that's terminology that I'm familiar with. That's terminology that I've been trained in order to make that make sense to the general public. Yes, and in science, you generally deal with uh, probabilities. You measure something, but it's a real number that falls within a probability. And what uh, President Goring kind of misses is that many of these uh, studies that are done, the EISs, the Environmental Impact Studies, or the Environmental Assessments, these are basically rubbing a crystal ball and trying to predict the future the future of how that tailings dam is going to respond to seismic activity or atmospheric rivers or climate change over a period of 50, 100, or 1,000 years. And in, in practice, we see that often these predictions of safety do not come true. You only have to look at the history of mines and the failure rate to see that these studies are not at all predictive of the future. Gotcha. Cause in, and that's a big, I think that's a big part of it because as, as scientists, we, we seek to figure out the, we, again, like you said, we work in probabilities. That's our whole kind of area. We're not going to be like, Oh, it's going to be this based off of maybe one or two things. We try and put in as much as we can to have a sense of, Hey, this is, has a high chance of happening based on all of these different factors. Uh, yes, I mean, we can predict the weather for tomorrow to a high degree of certainty. We can predict the weather a week from now with a much lower degree of certainty. Can we predict the weather 10 years from now on this date? There's no certainty whatsoever. And yet these mine companies are building structures that will have to last forever. And there's absolutely no certainty that that can happen safely. Gotcha. And then were there other, I want to still hit because we have about, looks like about two and a half minutes left in this first half of the show. Were there any other big points that he had made during his during my interview with him yesterday that you wanted to address? 
Um, well, he mentioned that uh, BC has reformed their mining laws and that they're now the best mining laws in the world. I have not compared BC's mining laws with all of the mining districts in the world, but there were many recommendations that came out of the Mount Polly expert panel that were not incorporated into these changes in laws. For instance, the Mount Polly expert panel said that tailings dams that hold water must be eliminated and that we cannot continue business as usual. Yet, BC continues to authorize watered tailings facilities right and left. They did not incorporate any of those changes into laws. And when you look at environmental laws, they're seen as, as separate from like corporate laws. So for instance, the Tulsaqua chief has been allowed to dump acid mine drainage into the Taku River for over 65 years because the companies have been protected by bankruptcy laws. And that's, you know, completely different than any of the environmental laws. Uh, one other thing is he mentioned that they have these tailings dam independent review panels, and indeed they do. But BC never changed the criteria of how to build a safe tailings dam. They are still based on water dams. Water dams do not have to last forever like a tailings dam does. And if something goes wrong with a water impoundment dam, you can drain the lake, you can fix the dam. You can't do that with a tailings dam. Gotcha. Then I guess one more quick question I have before we take our break is one of the big things that I have noticed is that Unlike a lot of times when you, you hear about these kinds of things within news, oftentimes it's mostly the NGOs are the ones making, making, putting out releases and things, and then the corporations are just like, oh, it's this, and then they kind of move on. But this is one of those few times where you know we've seen state legislators also get involved with these transboundary issues. They had drafted that letter for Secretary Blinken. And so why do you think, what is it that is different about it this time that we're seeing more of that sort of state and federal government influence as well? I think it's primarily because of the educational efforts that a lot of the NGOs and the tribes have done. They've pointed out the history of mining and the size and scope of this industrial mining. It's unlike anything we've ever seen in this part of the world. All right. Well, we're going to be taking our quick break, and we will continue that part of our conversation when we come back. You are listening to Action Line on KINY. Action Line. I am still your host, Jordan Lewis, and joining me in the studio still is Guy Archibald, the Executive Director for the Southeast Alaska Indigenous Transboundary Commission. I'm getting better at that. <laughs> getting better at it. Now, before the break, I was, had asked you about why do you think that we have the more of that state and federal government involvement, and you were talking about it a little bit, but I wanted you to kind of expand on it now that we're back from our break. Well, I think... Uh a lot of people recognize that the memo of understanding and the statement of concern that was signed between Alaska and British Columbia in 2015-2016 left the tribes off the table. The sovereign governments that exist here in southeast Alaska were not part of that negotiation, nor were they signees to a bilateral agreement. You know, what we need is a multilateral agreement because these tribes have existed here for thousands of years. They will still be here thousands of years from now when mining companies and uh, maybe even the state of Alaska no longer exist. Yeah, you will always still have 
people you want people everywhere that's kind of been a given but especially you know you want you think about in the indigenous cultures they've been here longer than you and i both have and probably our our own ancestors have been around up here for and so it's important to make sure that they're included yes the best predictor of future performance is past performance and the indigenous people here have learned to live within their environment in a respectful manner uh, there was probably more people living here prior to European contact than there is now, and yet they managed to do it without trashing the environment. They've gone through climate change and glaci glaciation periods. We need to learn from that experience and not leave it off to the side. You know, under the new laws in British Columbia that implement the UN Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous People, British Columbia has to respect the recognized territories as they existed prior to European contact. It's indisputable that Shimshian, Haida, and Klingit territories straddle that border, including many of the lands where these mines are now being proposed and or operating in British Columbia. So they have to seek free prior and informed consent of the Alaskan tribes. Gotcha. And then sort of to continue off of that point, during my, my talk with Goring yesterday, he had mentioned that there was more work being done with for the inclusion of those indigenous communities. Do you feel like that, that is the case or do you feel like there, there needs to be more that's going on? British Columbia has admitted to us, and we have a monthly phone call with them, a standing phone call, that they really do not know how they're going to implement these new laws. Currently, there is only one indigenous community that has the right to consent, a veto-level right of consent, and that is the Taltan Central Government, and that's only on one project, the S.K. Creek Project. The 15 tribes that make up Southeast Alaska Indigenous Transboundary Commission applied for what's called participating indigenous nation status within British Columbia, and we were denied. And they did, however, tell us exactly what evidence we need to do to get the right of consultation and consent. And they have stated that the level of consent, because consent exists along a spectrum from, you know, no consultation whatsoever to veto level consent. Where the Southeast tribes land on that continuum is going to be based on the strength of the evidence that we present. And we are now in the process of building that evidentiary base. Okay. Well, that makes me wonder, like, well, what evidence do they want, though? Or what do they want? Well, we commissioned a study for the Eunuch River from Sea Alaska Heritage Institute, and that study shows that the entire Eunuch River watershed, all the way to the headwaters, is Taekwadi territory, the clans that are precursor to our tribes. The tribes here are basically uh, under the federal government 1932 Indian Reorganization Act. The clans that existed prior to that are, are precursors to the tribes. So the entirety of the Eunuch River watershed belongs to the Southeast Alaska tribes, seven of them. But now they want further ethnographic evidence, uh, family ties, how the customary uses 
uh, were performed and and more evidence like that and uh, you know that evidence is out there and we are just currently in fundraising so that we can produce that evidence okay and then one thing I want to talk to you about is obviously a lot of what we brought up to you throughout our talk today has been the importance of having studies and being able to have, like, here's our study on this thing, here's our study on that thing. And that brings me back to the importance of a peer review. And so as a scientist yourself, as well as me, we both know how peer reviews work and the importance of that. And so do, what, do you want to talk about the relation of peer reviews and studies in these circumstances? Well, I think you have two different types of, of, let's call it knowledge out there. You have objective knowledge, which is kind of Western science. It's what we can go out, what we can measure um, and put, you know, on a chart and on a graph in this. Uh, the indigenous tribes have a, a different kind of knowledge. And it's, it's less objective, but it's no less pertinent. And it's based on a much longer database than any objective Western science has. It's more of a connection and a spirituality to this place, to the fish, to the trees, to the wildlife, to the rocks and water itself. And that's knowledge that um, where it's not so much subject to peer review, um, is very, very important. I'm kind of surprised that um, the governments hold uh, the conservation groups to a higher standard. They demand that all of our science be peer-reviewed and validated and verified, yet none of the studies produced by the mines, none of the monitoring data that's put out there has ever been peer-reviewed or, as far as I can tell, verified or validated. It's a, it's a separate uh, level of that they put on uh, conservation groups that they don't require of themselves. Okay. And then to, to sort of spring off of that question, then would it largely come down to, do you think it's because of the sort of the financial economic viewpoint purview on that? Because conservation would be, <clears throat> would in some way inhibit them from, raising money or it, yes there's it's a large part of that it it goes against their narrative that mining can be done safely that you can have a large mine and a massive sulfide deposit and it could cohabitate with uh anadromous or salmon habitat down below there is no evidence that a large mine and a massive sulfide can successfully protect a downstream salmon stream. It, it, that evidence just doesn't exist. And that's a narrative that they don't want out there. And it has a lot to do with uh, corporate responsibility. There's a lot of effort now to talk about corporate responsibility and corporate sustainability. But let's be clear. Corporations have a fiduciary duty to maximize their shareholder profit. They do not have a legal duty to protect the environment. Okay. And then I guess one question I would have then is, and obviously this is the nature of kind of any conversation, to, to do a brief devil's advocate kind of moment. Let's say that, I were to be representing of, of mining groups themselves. And at what point does our, does the push for certain conservation efforts 
come across as maybe too much, I guess, would be a potential question on that angle of it. Well, I think uh, conservation groups often will just say, or at least be heard to say, that they're just anti-mining. And in general, we're not anti-mining. We all use metals. I have metals in my cell phone and the car I drove here with. But I think what's lost is that the metals that sustain our lifestyle currently already exist. 90% of all the gold and silver ever mined and refined back into its elemental form still exist in that form. 80% of all the copper. It's already out there. When mining companies say that we need more metals, what they're telling us is that we need more stuff in our life. And that need for more stuff on our life is what's killing this planet. We don't need more electric cars. We need fewer cars, period, if we're going to live through this period of climate change as a species. Okay. And then you got about 40 seconds. Do you have any closing comments? Well, I, I thank the uh, state legislatures that signed a letter uh, that's a uh, very forward-looking thinking. I, they uh, showed that they actually respect the sovereign status of the Southeast tribes, and we appreciate that. And we're going to go forward as sovereign nations, government-to-government agreements between each and every individual tribe and Canada and British Columbia and or the mining company without anybody else at the table. This is between tribes and the governments. Alrighty. Well, thank you for coming on. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. I'm sure the mines will have things to say, as I for one does. <laughs> You've been listening to Action Line on KINY.